Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Mr. Chief Justice, please the court. After we found out later on what they say went down, that a cop was killed and that he was supposed to have been the trigger man. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. America is a country plagued by racism, culturally, politically, economically. But what about in the law? 30 years ago, Warren McCleskey, a black man on Georgia's death row, took proof to the U.S. Supreme Court that racial prejudice had impacted his trial and his sentence. McCleskey v. Kemp is the landmark Supreme Court case that nearly every law student in America studies, but few of them or us know the whole story. Life of the Law reporter Sarah Marshall traveled to Georgia to learn more about the man whose name has come to symbolize the end of equal protection under the law in America. We'll present our story in two parts. This week, we present part one, unequal protection. House is modest, split level, the kind you could drive by without even wondering about. I park my car across the street. Betty Myers steps out of a sliding glass door. She waves and tells me to park in her driveway. Inside the basement rec room, it's hard to see. There's one small window letting in the light. A long bookshelf fills one of the walls. Dozens of framed photos line the shelves. One of the photos catches my eye. The man in the photo is wearing a white uniform, the name McCleskey stenciled on the front. Warren McCleskey was born on March 17, 1946. He grew up with his six brothers and sisters in Marietta, Georgia. Today, it's a suburb of Atlanta, but back then, it was a small town. Betty was Warren's youngest sister, but she was the family's oldest daughter. We kind of had a bad childhood life, at least I did, because with me being the oldest girl, uh, I had a stepfather that was rather mean to my mom, and um, there were some things I just didn't like. And back then, I don't know if you knew, but back then, people sold moonshine, as they call it, white liquor. And we grew up doing that. I mean, that was our means of surviving. People came to your house and they bought liquor or whatever. And yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that, that was our way of living. 
Betty says she and her brother Warren weren't close-knit when they were growing up. They lived with different family members at different times, and Betty has been on her own since she was 15. I can only tell you what I knew of him as far as what he did, you know, behind the scenes. I don't know anything about it because my thing was I was more of a homebody person because I married in 67, been married ever since. I know he was a good person, very smart young man. Whatever he got involved with, I don't know anything about it. But it was right here in Betty's house that a legal epic began, one that exposed the limits of the Supreme Court's willingness to protect the rights of all Americans equally. The case was called McCleskey v. Kemp. It set the terms for how courts in America would consider race, and it revealed what one Supreme Court judge would call a fear of too much justice. It's impossible to know where this story will end, but maybe there are some clues in the way it began. It was May 30th, 1978. But I tell you what, what, what made me think something was going on because it was doing like a, a holiday. Mm-hmm. And I was working out here in my yard and I kept seeing a lot of old cars going around in the neighborhood and that was unusual. Mm-hmm. And it was white people and someone was dressed raggedy, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying to myself, hmm, that's unusual. What's going on? That's what I'm saying to myself. But it didn't happen that day. It all happened that night, in the middle of the night. When that went down, he was right here. We were asleep in the bed. Me and my husband, he was getting ready because he was working night shift. I guess maybe around about 3 o'clock that morning, I could hear car door slamming, bam, 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 bam. So I gets up and look out my bedroom window, and there was the cops over here, the whoever, with guns. They was in the creek over here, pointed up to the house. So my husband gets up and goes to the door. They didn't try to you know, break in anything. They rung the doorbell. My husband went to the door and answered the door. And they asked him, was he Raymond Myers? And he told him yes. And he said, well, we're looking for Warren McCleskey. Does he live here? And Raymond told him yes, which he was here. He was in the bed. Mm-hmm. From there, and I'm, I'm, I'm dumbfounded because when, when they went in the bedroom and got him, they had him, you know, handcuffed. Mm-hmm. And I'm standing like this. Well, what's going on? And I heard the, 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 the sheriff tell my husband something terrible has happened. Still didn't know. They start searching the house, going all over, pulling drawers and things out, everything. So when I looked at, we call him Fat. Instead of Warren, we call him Fat. That's what we call him. And I looked at him, I said, and he just did just like this, just shook his head. So I knew I didn't say anything else. But after that, I mean, I was shown up dumbfounded, especially after we found out later on what they say went down, that a cop was killed and that he was supposed to have been the trigger man. And when Betty Myers looks back on that May night and tries to remember anything that might have told her what was to come, she says she can think of nothing, nothing or maybe changes so small that she didn't even notice them until later. I remember one day I came home, he was out there cutting grass, or you know. And I'm saying, hmm. And I think, see, all this stuff had happened. 
And I'm still dumbfounded, still didn't know, you know, because I'm saying after it was all over, he ain't never cut no grass. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In the picture of Warren McCluskey that Betty Myers keeps on her bookshelf, her brother is leaning slightly toward the camera, but looking slightly away from it. He always was quiet. He didn't bother nobody. He didn't get in trouble doing it, you know, growing up. So we survived. You know, it's just like Betty's doing her thing as far as trying to survive. I'm doing my thing because he was working. But all that other stuff that was going on behind the scene, I know nothing about it. Nothing. Nothing. I can't put my hands on it. Betty says her mother raised them to be self-sufficient. My mother, she was the type of woman, she didn't hide anything from us. She was straight up with us. And she gave us the facts of life. And I believe that's why I tried to go the straight and narrow way. Mm -hmm. Because I was afraid of getting in trouble. And I didn't like trouble. You know what I'm saying? I didn't like police. I didn't want to go to jail. And I never have, never did, you know. So that was just something that I'd learned from her. Now, I mean, we was raised right. But, you know, sometimes other people go in a different path. The night Warren was arrested at his sister Betty Meyer's house, he was wanted in connection with an armed robbery that had taken place two weeks before, on May 13th. Four black men held up the Dixie Furniture Store in Atlanta. In the course of the robbery, an employee set off a silent alarm. Frank Schlatt, a white police officer, arrived at the scene. One of the robbers shot him twice. He died at the hospital three hours later. For two weeks, Atlanta detectives tried to figure out who had shot Officer Schlatt. They got their answer when an eyewitness identified Warren McCleskey as the trigger man. But there was a problem. The eyewitness who identified Warren McCleskey as the killer was Ben Wright, the man who had organized the robbery, and who was, for that reason, as likely a suspect in Officer Schlatt's murder as Warren himself. Today, Betty Myers remembers a call she received from Ben Wright after her brother was arrested. Because I never shall forget it. Ben Wright, he called me. And his thing was, uh, Miss Betty, he said, uh, I'm not going down by myself. Those were his words to me. To build the state's case against Warren McCleskey, prosecutors would need another witness to corroborate Ben Wright's testimony that Warren McCleskey killed Officer Schlatt. Attorney Jack Boger, who would eventually represent McCleskey on appeal, says the prosecution then put Offie Evans, a police informant, on the stand. The person who testified against McCleskey at trial and con said McCleskey confessed to me and said he would have done it, turned out to be a police informant who was nowhere near McCleskey in the jail, and who was moved by the investigating police officer from another floor in the jail to be right next to McCleskey, and shortly after he was moved, came out and said, miraculously, McCleskey has given me this confession. At trial, Warren McCleskey claimed that he was innocent of all charges. Later, he would admit to his role in the robbery, but he would maintain until the day he died that he had not killed Officer Schlatt. 
during jury selection at Warren's trial, the prosecutor used seven of his 15 peremptory strikes to exclude black jurors from the pool. In the end, the jury at Warren McCluskey's trial comprised one black juror and 11 whites. Meanwhile, Warren McCluskey's own defense attorney, John Taylor, did little research on his client or the case. Instead, Taylor spent much of the time leading up to the trial trying to convince Warren McCluskey to plead guilty and avoid the death penalty. Warren refused. He believed he had a strong case. During Warren's trial, the prosecution called 39 witnesses. Warren's lawyer called just four witnesses to testify for the defense. The jury deliberated for about three hours before convicting Warren McCluskey of murder and armed robbery. After rendering their guilty verdict, the jury then recommended the death penalty. Warren McCluskey's case was like countless others in Georgia. There was a discernible pattern, one in which a black man charged with killing a white victim could seemingly all but count on being convicted and sentenced to death. In fact, the guilty verdict and death sentence in Warren McCluskey's trial were so predictable that when John Boger represented Warren McCluskey on appeal, he argued that McCluskey's trial revealed a pattern of systemic racism that pervaded the entire state of Georgia. It was an argument that would take Warren McCluskey's case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the driving force behind the appeal would be data from a pioneering study that had the potential to revolutionize the American legal system. While Warren McCluskey awaited execution, Attorney John Boger was litigating capital appeals for the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund. The LDF was also searching for the right case to bring to the Supreme Court, a case that would have the potential to move the country toward the abolition of the death penalty. They focused their search on the state of Georgia. One of the overarching claims we wanted to make was that the death penalty was still racially discriminatory in its application. Georgia, it turns out, had all of the records of all homicide cases in the state brought to Atlanta to a Department of Pardons and Parole Board, and you could go to that one place and get the trial transcripts and the police reports of every one of the three or 4,000 cases of homicide in the state of Georgia over the last 10 years. So it was simply a good place to, to bring uh, data collectors to, instead of going to 156 counties, to collect all of that information. Their search led them to Warren McCluskey. Boger agreed to join Warren's appellate team in a case that would become known as McCluskey v. Kemp. The Kemp was Ralph Kemp, the warden at the prison in Jackson, which housed George's death row, and Warren McCluskey. There I was in New York, there he was in Georgia. Uh, I'd go down, fly down, and I would often have 10 or 12 clients at that point who were in the same facility, the Georgia Diagnostic Center in Jackson. And I'd go down for two days and spend two or three hours with a series of people. And they were of all sorts. I mean, there were some people, Warren McCluskey was one of them, with whom I had a relationship that felt very much like the relationships I would have with other people that I knew and liked. By the time attorney John Boger met his new client in 1981, Warren McCluskey had already been on George's death row for over two years. 
Bogart joined Warren's new lawyer, Robert Stroop, to handle Warren's appeal. Over the course of the time he spent in prison, he had really become a, 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 a much more mature person. There was another guy there, uh, Billy Moore, William Neal Moore, who's now out, who I represented, who actually got clemency. He and Warren were closest to friends. Mm. And both of them, you know, kind of being around them was like being around anyone else that, that I knew and, and liked. There was an anxiety uh, about their circumstances. But, I mean, I had really taken on the capital punishment role I remember self-consciously saying to somebody else, this is like uh, being at uh, a, a cancer facility, uh, you know, at Mount Sinai Hospital where everybody you get already has a mortal illness. If you can keep some people from dying, that's great, but you're not gonna keep everyone from dying. Booker planned to appeal Warren McCluskey's conviction based on a newly completed study by a University of Iowa law professor named David Baldus. He had conducted his research using the state of Georgia's legal records. Now, we didn't know when we started what we were going to find. Indeed, we made a devil's bargain with uh, Professor Baldus. Uh, Baldus actually told us, I'm not sure there's any racial discrimination left in the system. And he had done some other studies and we said, here's, here's our deal. We'll give you the quarter million dollars that the foundation has given to us to conduct this research. If you don't find any discrimination, write it up, publish it. If you do find discrimination, be a witness for us and testify. And so in a way, it was great that he came in with skepticism because as, he, as the evidence spoke to him, he became deeply convicted and surprised. My goodness, the evidence is strong and it's still here, and yes, I'll testify for you. And then we knew that we wanted to take that back if we were able to the Supreme Court to have them see it as well. Analyzing data from 594 death penalty cases tried in the state of Georgia between 1973 and 1978 Baldus uncovered a remarkable trend. Defendants who were convicted of murdering white victims were more than four times as likely to receive the death penalty as they would be if they were convicted of killing a non-white victim. The Baldus study presented data which, according to Boger, revealed a great deal about the criminal justice system in Georgia. There had been other people who had seen the race of victim phenomenon. Indeed, there were two North Carolina studies in the 30s and 40s of capital cases in North Carolina that had shown that. And while it's not immediately intuitive what's happening there, the more you reflect on it, the more intuitive it becomes. Because what it does is to say, in effect, that the criminal justice system has to expend resources in order to prosecute and convict somebody capitally which are the lives that have mattered enough that we're willing to expend those resources. And it turns out to be disproportionately white lives. If an African-American kills another African-American, let's just plead it out to life. And if you're the criminal defense lawyer, you say, sure, life, the option is death. My client will take life. If it's a white doctor or an older white school teacher or whatever, then you go, we're not going to let this plead out for life. 
we're going to go for death, particularly in the interracial crimes where an African-American has crossed the racial boundary to kill a white person, we are determined to impose the most severe penalty. There's at least one more factor that plays into this. A lot more, a lot higher percentage of the African-American population didn't believe in capital punishment. Boger says that his work as the director of the LDF's Capital Punishment Project also gave him personal insight into the trends the Baldus study exposed. Anecdotally, we realized that there were a lot of circumstances upon the death of a, of a person where the prosecutor would go out to visit the family and say, what do you want? And most of those prosecutors, virtually all of whom were white, would go to white homes, but sometimes wouldn't go to the black homes. You know, they, they wouldn't say, they weren't treating that family as quite as seriously as they would treat a white family in terms of saying, what's your preference for the outcome in this case? The beauty of the Baldus study was that it wasn't anecdotal. It argued that the criminal justice system throughout the state of Georgia was hobbled by systemic racism, and it did so by offering the most objective evidence anyone could ask for. Data. Numbers trends. Baldus really was a person who says, who said to the state, who said to the district judge, I will take the data that I've got and I'll analyze it any way you want to. There are actually some cases in which the lawyers for the plaintiff or the defendant know only if we use a particular analytical method does it come out my way. Baldus said I'll do it using one method, I'll use a second method, I'll use a third method, I'll use a lot of factors and look at a uh, hundred different factors that might bear on whether one is uh, uh, receiving a fair sentence or not. I'll use 10, I'll use 20. For Warren McCluskey, the road to the U.S. Supreme Court was to be a long one. After Warren's conviction, his trial lawyer, John Taylor, appealed his case to the Georgia Supreme Court. The state court affirmed his conviction. That's when Robert Stroop and John Boger took Warren's appeal to the federal courts. They filed a petition for a writ of habeas corpus in the United States District Court for the Northern District of Georgia. At one point during our hearing before the district judge, Baldus said, and at the time this was a big deal, we are connected with the computer back in Iowa. Judge, you're an old prosecutor. You tell us what factors do make a difference in juries, what make it more likely that they would give a death sentence, what make it less likely, we'll take your model that you build for us and we'll run it back to, to Iowa City and tell you what the results are. And the judge did take us up on that. And his model showed more racial discrimination than we were arguing for. So it was really pretty powerful. And, and indeed, you turn to the state and say, please, you know, tell us what you would do. In February 1984, after a lengthy evidentiary hearing in U.S. District Court, Judge J. Owen Forrester ruled against Warren McCluskey. He argued that the data utilized by Professor Baldus was, quote, substantially flawed. Their basic response was to say the data is unreliable. And you say, that's funny because the data is actually the police records and reports and the prosecutor's records and the trial testimony that you, Georgia, put on in order to get these death sentences or not. And they, they would just, oh, well, this, this data is so dir dirty. Or else there are so many factors that no one can ever know what uh, 
might make a difference. Warren McCleskey's attorneys, Stroop and Boger, then appealed Judge Forrester's decision to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, which, in turn, affirmed Judge Forrester's decision. Warren McCleskey's attorneys then petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court to review the case. Despite the fact that five of the Supreme Court's nine justices voted against reviewing McCleskey, the Supreme Court's rule of four meant that the case was still eligible for Supreme Court review. And so, in October 1986, eight years after his conviction and seven years after his first appeal was filed in state court, Warren McCleskey's case was argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. At the Supreme Court level, I do think, I mean, it was an odd thing that the court did. It said, we're going to assume for purposes of this case that the evidence that you have presented to us is true. We're not necessarily going to assume the conclusions that you draw from it, but we're going to assume that it's true. And yet the court drew back from the obvious implications of that. I mean, at one point saying, we're not sure that the fact that whites are four times, or white victim cases are four times more likely to receive death than black victim cases is evidence of racial discrimination. It could be something else. We've got no evidence what that is. The state was given full opportunity, never came forward with us. We don't want to go there. One of the judges in the Court of Appeals said, I remember during oral arguments, oh gosh, if that's true about murder, it's probably true about armed robbery. It's probably true about other things. That, that would indict our whole criminal justice system. And I sort of said, well, you know, gird up your loins. If that's in fact a problem in our criminal justice system, we need to confront it. We can't simply avert our eyes. On October 15, 1986, John Boger argued the case of McCleskey v. Kemp before the U.S. Supreme Court. At the heart of Warren McCleskey's appeal was an implicit question the Supreme Court's nine justices now had to answer, whether they wanted to or not. How did they define racism? And if they acknowledged it existed in America's criminal justice system, what were they required to do? We'll hear arguments first this morning in number 846811, Warren McCleskey v. Ralph Kemp. Mr. Bowler, you may proceed when you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, if the state of Georgia had criminal statutes that expressly imposed different penalties, harsher penalties, on black defendants simply because they were black, or on those who killed white victims simply because those victims were white, the statutes would plainly violate the Constitution. There's a time, of course, when the state of Georgia did have such statutes before our nation's civil war, when free blacks and slaves alike could be given a death sentence merely for the crime of assault on a Georgia white citizen. With the ratification of the 14th Amendment, such criminal statutes came explicitly, no longer to be written. Yet the old habits of mind, the racial attitudes of that time, have survived, as this Court well knows, into the current century. Today, we are before the Court with a substantial body of evidence indicating that during the last decade, Georgia prosecutors and juries 
in their administration of Georgia's post-Furman capital statutes have continued to act as if some of those old statutes were still on the books. A black defendant convicted in the state of Georgia of the murder of a white person goes to his sentencing hearing with as serious a handicap against him on racial grounds alone as if the prosecutor had hard evidence that he had been tried and convicted previously of another murder. The color of a defendant's skin, in other words, or that of his victim, is often as grave an aggravating circumstance, in fact, in Georgia, as those expressly designated by Georgia's legislature. The argument that Boger presented to the U.S. Supreme Court in the case of McCleskey v. Kemp was one that had the power to fundamentally change the American legal system. If the Supreme Court's justices determined that the Balda study provided sufficient grounds for them to nullify McCleskey's conviction based on the argument that his trial had been compromised by the racial prejudice in Georgia's courts, then that might provide grounds for appealing countless other convictions and death sentences based on the same criteria. It was an argument that hinged on the idea that a trial's fairness could be compromised not just by the overtly racist motives of an individual prosecutor or juror, but by the workings of widespread racial bias that a trial's participants were likely unaware of. It's white participants, anyway. And like the jury that convicted Warren McCleskey of murder, the Supreme Court that heard the case of McCleskey v. Kemp on October 15, 1986, had one black member. The rest of the people who would decide Warren McCleskey's fate and answer the question of whether it seemed conceivable to them that the criminal justice system could function differently for black and white citizens were white. I mean, one of the things, frankly, tactically you do if you're well-trained, and I was very well-trained because Legal Defense funded a lot of those arguments, is know in advance there are two or three people I cannot get. They will not vote for me because of their prior uh, sort of written statements. I want to be gracious to them, but I don't want to let them spend 10 minutes apiece asking me questions. If I can answer their question and get on to something else, if I can find a judge whose mind is still open, that's where I want to spend my time. So part of the practicing is not just knowing what the, quote, answer to the question is, but knowing how to elide out from a series of questions by a justice who's not going to give you any help to a justice who might still be um, open and concerned. And a brand new justice had just joined the Supreme Court, a stripling who had only been on the bench for about three weeks. Now, ironically, one of the people who just joined the bench when McCluskey was argued in 1986 was Anthony Scalia. And what I knew about Scalia was he was really smart. And so I thought he might understand the statistics uh, and, and had some exchanges with him about that. Uh, we later realized that he was totally dismissive. But the, the question I remember his asking me, actually I was proud of my answer on this. He said, counsel, counsel, there are all these questions about statistics. And, and what if your statistics showed that red-haired people got death more than, than, than you know, blonde-haired people, et cetera? And, what if, and he had another example like that. And I said, spur of the moment, well, Justice Scalia, we didn't fight a civil war over whether people were red-haired or blonde-haired. We did fight a civil war over race. This is not a, a 
sort of capricious um, set of data. It's a data about something we know deep in our hearts is part of what America has wrestled with for 400 years. That didn't impress him, but it it was, it was, I think it was a pretty good answer to the red-haired problem. He later actually wrote a memo that has been found in Library of Congress files when when somebody else died, one of the other justices, they gave their files to the Library of Congress, in which he said, I don't doubt that these data show what they appear to show. But I think uh, arbitrariness is built into a system that allows juries to make these choices, and we basically have to accept it. They go, wow, so you're willing to accept racial injustice. And I... um, you do wonder, at least I had wondered, you know, gosh, if you, if there were just injustice against uh, people from Italy, would you have felt quite as blasé about it as people from, from an African past? As in all other cases, the Supreme Court gave Warren McCleskey's attorney one hour to present his oral arguments in the case of McCleskey v. Kemp. Six months later, on April 22, 1987, Justice Lewis Powell announced the court's majority 5-4 opinion. This capital case is here from the Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. The case involves the relevance of a complex statistical study in Georgia that indicates generally that racial considerations may enter into the capital sentencing process in some cases. In his habeas corpus petition in federal district court, McCleskey argued that the entire Georgia capital punishment system is administered in a racially discriminatory manner based on the race of the victim and to a lesser extent on the race of the defendant. McCleskey supported his claim with a complex multiple regression analysis called the Baldus study. The district court held an extensive evidentiary hearing on McCleskey's petition. It concluded that McCleskey had failed to show unconstitutional discrimination against him. For the reasons stated in an opinion filed today, we affirm, we hold first that under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, McCleskey must prove that the decision makers in his case acted with a discriminatory purpose. The generalized statistics of the Baldus study failed to raise an inference that McCleskey was discriminated against on the basis of his race or the race of the victim. McCleskey's arguments are best presented to legislative bodies. Capital punishment is the law of the land in more than two-thirds of our states. The Supreme Court's 5-4 decision to affirm Warren McCleskey's conviction would ultimately result in Warren McCleskey's execution. In the 30 years since the Supreme Court announced its decision in McCleskey v. Kemp, the ruling has affected countless Americans. It has done so by releasing the courts from the minimum responsibility of acknowledging structural racism in American law. Osagi Obasagi is a professor at UC Berkeley in the Joint Medical Program and School of Public Health and is the author of Blinded by Sight, Seeing Race Through the Eyes of the Blind. Referring to the work of Berkeley law professor Ian Haney Lopez, 
Obasaki says the court went from making a more holistic consideration of equal protection claims, as they had in previous cases, to focusing on the behavior of individual actors in McCleskey and beyond. The court goes from being open to a conversation about the structural nature of discrimination, that is, the court was at least uh, aware of and willing to engage how discrimination is not simply one bad actor who does something terrible to a particular individual. And the court then uh, moves from being open to these structural conversations to foreclosing them with McCleskey. Obasaki's writing on McCleskey v. Kemp focuses on the effect the decision had on the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which was adopted after the Civil War. The Equal Protection Clause seems like it should be simple enough. It tells us, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. McCleskey is an example of how the court essentially closed the door on the Equal Protection Clause being able to acknowledge or recognize the structural nature of discrimination and creates precedent that essentially says in order for there to be an equal protection violation that McCleskey or any individual would have to show that the racial discrimination was purposeful, intentional, and driven by individual malice. And that's a very high bar to meet uh, when an individual brings an equal protection claim. The history of any legal battle is also the history of the political climate in which it took place. The Supreme Court rendered their opinion on McCleskey v. Kemp 30 years ago, on April 22nd, 1987. And according to Boger, the timing of the case may well have played a decisive role in its outcome. He left the LDF in 1990 to join the University of North Carolina School of Law faculty, but continued to work on Warren's case. This is one of the things I teach my uh, constitutional law students is that different courts develop projects. They develop areas or concerns that matter to them and they respond accordingly when they have cases come before them. The, the Earl Warren Court from 1953 to mid-1960s was a court that was terribly concerned about criminal justice and being sort of even-handed and fair to criminal defendants, and not giving them any special breaks, but just making sure the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Eighth Amendment, you know, were adequately uh, enforced. Frankly, the, the courts of, uh, Justices Rehnquist and on down to Chief Justice Roberts are very concerned about federalism, about not having too much federal interference with the prerogatives of states. Mm -hmm. And I do think you saw a withdrawal from the capital punishment area uh, and, and, and enforcement of, of uh, the very amendments and, and rights that earlier courts had, had trumpeted um, in death penalty decisions as well as others. To Boger, the Supreme Court's decision in McCleskey also reflected a deeper fear, that reversing McCleskey's conviction and in the process validating his grounds for appeal would open the door to countless other death row inmates successfully appealing their convictions, and doing so in a way that might lead to the end of the death penalty altogether. 
The, the other thing that had we were facing by the mid-1980s, the Supreme Court had held that death was different in 1976 and that there had to be special care taken before a death sentence was carried out. Based on that, there were a whole series of things that were flaws in various state statutes, the Alabama statute, the Florida statute, etc., that the court was given and said, you're right, that doesn't seem fair. Every time they said that, there were 70 cases behind it that were backed up because they were all in, using that same Alabama procedure or Florida procedure. So 70 people would go and 80 people would go. And there began to be a drumbeat, literally by an organization in California, saying, don't you realize you, the Supreme Court, are the major impediment to the states being able to carry out the capital punishment they've decided is appropriate. You've got to stay your hand. You've got to get out of the business. And particularly in the racial area, if you go in there, they'll come back with Florida, they'll come back with Mississippi, they'll come back with North Carolina. All of those cases, states may have patterns like this, and you will ultimately end the death penalty. And that's what the Legal Defense Fund is trying to do. I think people are afraid of crime, many people, and can be made more afraid of crime. And I think it's a very easy fix for a prosecutor to say, we will put to death the people that are causing this fear in you. And, and, and um, a certain percentage of people, probably a majority of people in some states, say, great, that will happen. Our rejoinder is, first, if you look at the facts of what they do, they will not put to death most of those people. Indeed, some of the very most frightening people are going to continue to stay alive. The way in which they carry it out bears, forgive me, some similarity to what the Aztecs apparently do, which is to say every year, let's take somebody and call them our scapegoat and cut their heart out, you know, on a stone uh, an altar. And that will be our sacrifice to the gods. This shows we're tough. Well, the death penalty had that let's show them we're tough kind of quality. And so prosecutors would go for it. And when do you go for it? If you don't know that you believe in it entirely, in the cases that would be most likely to have a responsive uh, citizenry say, great, that was a horrible case. Those cases tended to be cases in which uh, whites were, were the victims. So, so it's responsive to, to uh, uh, inchoate fear and concern. Something needs to be done. This is something. Supreme Court opinions often tell us just as much about the people writing them as the cases they describe. And according to Osagi Obasagi, the Supreme Court's decision in McCluskey reveals not just the prevailing political attitudes of the time, but the role of the Supreme Court in American society, and how different that role is from the role we might imagine the court plays. Specifically, McCluskey can show us that the rulings of America's ultimate legal authority can be astonishingly subjective. At some point, this moves from being a scientific or evidentiary question to a political question. And if that's the case, the courts then are no longer acting as an arbiter of, of law. It's then a political or ideological actor in that it's, it's saying that um, scientific evidence doesn't matter. We're going to hold true to certain kind of ideas or concepts, regardless of what evidence is presented in front of us. And that's a problem. Um, and that's something that should be talked about and discussed and fleshed out because the court's adherence to this kind of individualist notion of discrimination as being the kind of the core concept of equal protection is in some regards a political choice they've made. But 
perhaps even more crucially, the decision in McCleskey exposes something about America, and perhaps something about us. I think one of the reasons why the decision at McCleskey is attractive to many people is because it aligns with a basic concept in our American legal system, that is that people should only be held accountable for their individual actions. Um, however, that approach is sociologically naive, and it's important for the court to be uh, aware of the structural na nature of discrimination, that is how certain ideas and practices and ideologies get institutionalized to produce these bad outcomes, and it's important for equal protection to be attentive to that. And taking a closer look at McCleskey v. Kemp might also tell us not just about where we've been, but about where we're going. And not just what the Supreme Court's role is in America today, but what that role could be. We're at a political moment where we're seeing this doubling down on individualism, um, where folks feel particularly empowered to uh, only hold people accountable for their individual actions and not paying attention to the uh, how certain structures or institutions in our society are embedded with racial biases that can produce adverse outcomes for minorities without any particular bad individual being identified. Um, and um, given that context, it's difficult to have this conversation about rethinking McCleskey 30 years afterwards. The Supreme Court's decision in McCleskey v. Kemp also included a blistering dissent by Justice William Brennan. Brennan began his dissent by making one thing clear. He was willing to accept the implications of the Baldus study and he was horrified by what the data revealed. Nothing could convey more powerfully the intractable reality of the death penalty. At the effort to eliminate arbitrariness in the infliction of that ultimate sanction is so plainly doomed to failure that it and the death penalty must be abandoned altogether. Petitioner McCleskey has clearly demonstrated that his death sentence was imposed in violation of the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments. In his dissent, Justice Brennan also imagined the conversation that Warren McCluskey and countless other defendants like him had shared with his attorney at the beginning of his legal battle. At some point in this case, Warren McCluskey doubtless asked his lawyer whether a jury was likely to sentence him to die. A candid reply to this question would have been disturbing. Frankness would compel the disclosure that it was more likely than not that the race of McCleskey's victim would determine whether he received a death sentence. The story could be told in a variety of ways, but McCleskey could not fail to grasp its essential narrative line. There was a significant chance that race would play a prominent role in determining if he lived or died. The court today holds that Warren McCleskey's sentence was constitutionally imposed. It finds no fault in a system in which lawyers must tell their clients that race casts a large shadow on the capital sentencing process. Justice Brennan's dissent also addressed the Supreme Court's fear not just of what it would mean for them to reverse Warren McCleskey's conviction, but what kind of precedent such a reversal might set, and of the other cases that it seemed would inevitably follow. The court next states that its unwillingness to regard petitioner's evidence as sufficient is based in part on the fear that recognition of McCleskey's claim would open the door to widespread challenges to all aspects of criminal sentencing. Taken on its face, such a statement seems to suggest a fear of too much justice. Yet surely the majority would acknowledge that if striking evidence indicated that other minority groups or women or even persons with blonde hair were disproportionately sentenced to death, 
such a state of affairs would be repugnant to deeply rooted conceptions of fairness. The prospect that there may be more widespread abuse than McCleskey documents may be dismaying, but it does not justify a complete abdication of our judicial role. The Constitution was framed fundamentally as a bulwark against governmental power, and preventing the arbitrary administration of punishment is a basic ideal of any society that purports to be governed by the rule of law. Our commitment to these values requires fidelity to them even when there is temptation to ignore them. It is tempting to pretend that minorities on death row share a fate in no way connected to our own, that our treatment of them sounds no echoes beyond the chambers in which they die. Such an illusion is ultimately corrosive, for the reverberations of injustice are not so easily confined. The court's decision today will not change what attorneys in Georgia tell other Warren McCleskeys about their chances of execution. McCleskey's evidence will not have obtained judicial acceptance, but that will not affect what is said on death row. However many criticisms of today's decision may be rendered, these painful conversations will serve as the most eloquent dissents of all. The significance of, of Justice Brennan's dissent is that he's calling out the court, the majority, um, by saying that, you know, the reason why you are not sensitive to McCleskey's claim is because you're afraid that if you are, if the court becomes aware of these structural inequalities, that would place a burden on the court to have to engage in the long process of rethinking the way our entire society is organized to produce these disparate outcomes for minorities. And Brennan is saying, you guys are afraid of taking that role. And when I read this case, that always stands out to me as a profound moral challenge to the court in terms of it, in a sense, shirking its responsibility to be that agent that can produce social change in the name of racial justice. If the court took a different approach to a case like McCleskey, it would force them to take seriously the structural nature of discrimination across a whole host of areas, including housing, education, criminal justice, et cetera. And once the structural nature of discrimination is taken seriously, then these types of disparities would be forced back into the public discussion about how can we think of alternative ways to organize uh, various state procedures in a way that would lead to more equitable outcomes. And I think that's precisely the type of public conversation that is needed. And the court could be a tremendous leader in doing that by uh, thinking differently about the way that it approaches equal protection conversations. When Warren McCleskey's appeal reached the Supreme Court, Boger was optimistic about his client's chances, and with good reason. If the Supreme Court required objective proof of systemic racism at work in the criminal justice system, they could hardly expect to find anything more persuasive than the Baldus study. But it hadn't been enough. And now, the issues it had raised would die, along with Warren McCleskey himself. Perhaps no one understood this quite as keenly as Reverend Billy Moore. He shared a deep friendship with Warren McCluskey during the decade both men spent on death row. But their paths were to diverge dramatically. In 1974, Moore pled guilty to killing a homeowner during the commission of a burglary. But after he was sentenced to death, he formed a close relationship with the family of the victim. Moore spent 16 years on death row. Then, in 1990, on the eve of his execution, 
The family of the victim petitioned the State Board of Pardons and Paroles to save Billy Moore's life. The victim's niece, Sarah Farmer, told the board, This is our brother Billy, and you can't kill him. We've lost one family member, and we're not going to lose another. We don't want you to execute him. The Georgia Board of Pardons and Paroles voted unanimously to spare Billy Moore's life and commuted his sentence to life in prison. The following year, Moore was paroled. He has been crusading against the death penalty ever since and telling the story of his friend, Warren McCleskey. Since they did the statistical study in his case, and his case became nationally known dealing with the death penalty and showing the biasness of the death penalty. I was telling him, I said, listen, your case has gone past you as a person. Now the state wants to kill you because you represent everything that shows that the state have been sentencing people from a prejudiced perspective. And so they're going to fight and do everything that they can do to deny your issues to be heard and to try to execute you. And as it went through the courts, the lower courts agreed the 11th Circuit ruled against him, and then the Supreme Court basically said, yeah, we see that it's biased, but it's not our job to fix it. Let Congress fix it, when in actuality, it is the court's responsibility to do it. So. He was very disappointed, and everybody was disappointed, because we had believed that the, the Supreme Court would do what was right, and now we see that they turned a blind eye. Beyond the political issues raised by McCleskey v. Kemp, beyond the uncomfortable questions the case posed about how impartial the criminal justice system was in Georgia, and by extension, in the United States, Beyond the fact that McCleskey v. Kemp essentially handed the Supreme Court justices a thread and told them to pull and keep pulling and see how much of the whole judicial system might unravel as a result. Beyond all this, Warren McCleskey's friends and family had another reason to suspect that he was doomed to die in the electric chair, no matter how strong his case was. The law, the law, the law. <laughs> Because I always said, you got two different laws, two different, you know? Because in my heart, I know he's, he fought for his life as far as wanting to stay here. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But I think somewhere down the line, he just felt, well, you know, I done did all I can do. And the lawyers done did all they could do. When it comes to our race, they're always going to, you know, pick us out and say, okay, he did it, or she did it, you know? When it comes to certain issues with the policeman, uh, the, the race, that's just the way it is. Nothing has changed, a little, but it's a whole lot still the same, and you know, they try to cover it up, but I don't see no difference. Unequal Protection Part 1 was reported by Sarah Marshall, edited and produced by myself and Tony Gannon. Our post-production editors are Kirsten Jesuits Heidel and Rachel Kane. Music in this episode was composed by Ian Koss. 
Our engineers were Sarah Mellison of Marfa Public Radio and Jim Bennett at KQED Radio in San Francisco. If you like stories about the law but have gotten tripped up by the legal system, tune into Life of the Law on iTunes. Take a few minutes to post your review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send everyone who's subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law that includes notes from our reporters and news about upcoming investigative reports. Subscribe to our newsletter at lifeofthelaw.org. This week, read Sarah Marshall's notes on her work on unequal protection. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation. We hope you'll join us in meeting our 2017 Spring Fun Drive goal. Your dollars will directly support our investigative journalism. It just takes a minute. Visit lifeofthelaw.org and follow the donate button. Next on Life of the Law, we present part two, unequal protection. We sit there, we talk, we laugh, but when it's time to go, they have to sit there and watch you leave. And I always wanted to take him with me. I mean, it was just like, why can't you come with me? That's next on Life of the Law, part two of unequal protection. Visit our website and make a donation to support investigative journalism in 2017 and beyond. Your support is critical. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.